The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Well, we are back in 1 Corinthians chapter um, 14. Exciting. We, uh, I, I forget when we left off in 1 Corinthians. It was a while ago. Finished chapter 13 and took a break. So we're going to resume um, at chapter 14, and we'll read the first five verses as we begin. So Paul says, Pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands. But in his spirit, I think it should be for by the spirit, he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more than that, that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies and the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. So uh, we come to um, really just an incredibly uh, challenging passage, right? Dealing with tongues and prophecy. And so um, I've been thinking about uh, different ways to skin this cat, okay? which is actually one of my favorite metaphors, skinning a cat. Um, There's different ways we could approach it. And I've come up with an approach that I think is going to be edifying, all right? So here's here's the simple truth, is that um, you can't come to 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 anymore without dealing with what's been called the first wave, the second wave, the third wave, and now the fourth wave. Anybody know what I'm talking about? First wave, second wave, third wave, fourth wave? What's that? Huh? No, no, I'm talking about waves. First wave, second wave, third wave. So the first wave was the uh, Pentecostal movement in... um, Basically, 1904 starts um, in Topeka, Kansas, in Azusa, California. And that movement um, was marked uh, by um, speaking in tongues oh, and heresy. Um, it's always important to throw in, remember that. Um, and so out of that, what's called sometimes the first wave, you had your Pentecostal denominations, Assembly of God, Foursquare, Church of God in Christ, Church of God of Prophecy, Church of God, Church of God, Church of God, fill in the blanks. Um, That movement was a very denominational movement. It was characterized by a very distinct perspective on the baptism in the Spirit. So in in what we would call classic or or traditional Pentecostalism, the baptism in the Spirit is a post-conversion uh, experience that is marked by speaking in tongues. In fact, if you don't speak in tongues, you've not been baptized in the Spirit. That's the simple theology. Um, then there's the, the second wave, and the second wave um, was uh, 1960s. Um, Anglican priest Dennis Bennett in Van Nuys, California, can any good thing come from Van Nuys, California? And that um, he had an experience of glossolalia, glossolalia, so speaking in tongues, and the Anglican priests. And so the second wave was the charismatic movement that starts in the 60s. Uh, the thing about the charismatic movement was that there were different things that were quite different than Pentecostalism. So the charismatic movement, for instance, was transdenominational. You had Baptists and Catholics and Anglicans and 
Methodists and yea, even Lutherans that were involved in this, and it was marked by yeah, there was uh, there was speaking in tongues. There was a move away from the idea that the baptism in the Spirit was um, was necessarily post conversion and marked by speaking in tongues. But in fact, uh, speaking in tongues was a big deal. Um, prophecy was a big deal. Um, typically in charismatic circles, you'd have uh, maybe a regular service and an afterglow service. The afterglow service is where the, the exciting stuff happened. The regular service where the boring stuff happened, like the preaching, and then the afterglow, that's when it was really, we'll have one in my office right after Bible study. Um, so that, that was the charismatic movement, 60s, 70s. But then... There was the third wave. So this is the idea of waves, right? First wave of the Holy Spirit, second wave. Third wave was uh, basically the, uh, the signs and wonders movement that was late 70s, early 80s. And um, the leading figures there uh, was um, a, a couple of Fuller Seminary professors, um, John Wimber and uh, C. Peter Wagner. And this uh, signs and wonders movement basically said, um, by the way, there was an effort in the third wave to try to be a little more biblical. Um, The idea was, is that when the kingdom of God comes, you read in the Gospels, when the kingdom of God comes, it comes in signs and wonders, okay? And so if, so basically taking the theology of the already and the not yet or inaugurated kingdom stuff, Uh, John Wimber and others were saying, well, if the kingdom's been inaugurated, where's the signs and wonders? And so they started having signs and wonders. In fact, John Wimber actually had a signs and wonders class at Fuller Seminary, how to do signs and wonders, how to do what he he called, Wimber Wimber called it doing the stuff. So he had, (laughs) dead serious, he had a class uh, where he was teaching students how to do the stuff. And uh, the, the seminary shut the class down because of um, uh, uh, emotional and mental disorders that kind of came out of it. But it was, um, it was that movement where uh, vineyard churches started. Okay? Um, and so there was an emphasis not just on uh, tongues, as in Pentecostalism, but there was an emphasis on, on, on all the gifts, and, uh, and especially... Uh, um, falling down, which isn't a gift. Um, so I, I didn't mean that sarcastically, but um, so the idea of um, coming under the power, uh, Wimber's power evangelism, evangelism uh, is effective when it's accompanied by signs, wonders, and miracles. Um, that vineyard movement was uh, ended up being marked by certain excesses as if they weren't started under certain excesses. Um, the uh, Laughing Revival, the Toronto Blessing, you might, some of you might remember that, early 90s, uh, the idea that when the Spirit came, people, you, you would just start laughing hysterically, um, which was the sign of the Spirit. Um, out of that, uh, of course, there were other things that developed in this third wave uh, and, and one of those was what were called the Kansas City Prophets, okay? And the Kansas City Prophets were uh, associated with what was known as the International House of Prayer. Yes, IHOP, that's what they called it. Um, Mike Bickle and others were prophets. Now, here's the amazing thing. They were all gifted as prophets, and yet they willingly acknowledged that 90% of what they said never came true. Um, that, that's, not a, that's not an exaggeration. Mike Bickle and some of these guys would just say, you know, yeah, a lot of the stuff that we say, the majority of stuff that we say doesn't happen. Um, but it was sort of out of that that there was sort of a transition to what some are calling uh, the fourth wave. The fourth wave is newer, and uh, that's the new apostolic reformation, the Bethel nonsense, the Bethel heresy, okay? So let me just let me just make this abundantly clear. Bethel and their school of supernatural theology and ministry 
is, is heretical. Bill Johnson, the leader, is a heretic. All right? Um, there, is, there is nothing good about any of it. Okay? But it's marked by... Now, you, you have to understand that, that when you get these movements that emphasize uh, prophesying, speaking in tongues, uh, falling down, that that stuff becomes not so exciting after a while. I mean, you can only laugh for so long. And so you know what happens, you know what has to fuel these movements is the next thing, right? So these movements in this so-called fourth wave is driven by the most ridiculous of things. Um, angel dust coming, dropping on the congregation as they worship. Okay? And when I was in high school, that meant PCP. <laughs> um, angel feathers. Um, I mean, just, just crazy things, right? But you have to, you have to keep upping, upping the ante to keep people interested. That's why... Just regular preaching through the Bible is what should be what interests you. <laughs> and that never changes. And you don't have to improve on it. Right? You don't have to come up with something more exciting. Right? You know, what, what could be more exciting than 1 Corinthians 14? 1 Corinthians 15. You see, it's already built in. The escalation is already built in. And so these are the, the so-called four waves of the Holy Spirit. And, of course, it's all within just shortly over a hundred year period. Now, here's the reality. You cannot come to 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 as if those things have not happened. You, You understand what I mean? You can't come. In other words, Calvin would have exegeted 1 Corinthians 14 in a way that he didn't have to take into consideration the things that we have to take into consideration. Does that make sense? Okay. So there's no way to come to the text apart from Pentecostalism, charismatic movement, uh, you know, signs and wonders, and new apostolic reformation. Okay. Because, because those things are so pervasive, they, they shape, um, they, they shape a, a huge subculture of evangelicalism. So that trying to come to the text, you see, when I read prophecy in tongues, there's stuff that's already coming to your mind that is directly connected with either personal experience or experience of, uh, of, of somebody that's close to you, right? So in other words, there's no way to extricate ourselves from the context in which we live as we come to the text. So you have all of these issues, let me, just, let me just spell them out for you so that you'll at least know what I'm talking about. Um, there's the whole issue of whether all of these gifts that Paul's going to talk about continue to this day or whether they've ceased. Okay. Is that a big issue? Is that an important issue? So you have continuationism, which that would be the view that they continue. And then you have... Cessationism, that is the view that they've ceased. Um, we've talked about these things before, but th- those, are, those are hot potato issues, right? Um, and we'll get to those issues. Uh, there's also, um, what, what exactly is Paul talking about when he talks about tongues? You know, there are two very distinct views of what Paul's talking about. Some see this uh, inescapably as uh, tongues being actually a human language. Uh, Others, no, not really. Um, Ecstatic utterance, um, uh, some sort of um, prayer and praise language that is that's not a human language at all. It's, it's actually 
uh, a, a heavenly language, an angelic language, some would say. And, and, and what it is, is it's, it, it sounds just like a bunch of syllables being all crammed together with some sort of cadence, but it's a, a, a heavenly language. Is there a difference between saying it's actually a human language <laughs> and that it's ecstatic utterance? Nature of tongues. Another issue that, that, that rarely gets talked about, but actually should be a major concern, and that is, so everybody wants to know, well, what are tongues? But very few people ever ask, what's the purpose? Why? Why? Why tongues? Um, what about prophecy? There's, um, there, there are different views of, of what Paul's talking about when he's talking about prophecy. You have, you have everything, and I have a nifty chart I'll show you in a couple of weeks. You have everything from prophecy is just like uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Elijah, the Spirit of the Lord comes on me, and what I say is, is thus says the Lord, and it's God's word. By the way, if that's true, then I am speaking on par with Holy Scripture. And you have other people that go, no, 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 that's not what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about um, spirit-prompted utterance that's not authoritative or infallible for that matter, um, but it is the way that the spirit communicates with people in the body, and it's, uh, it's supernatural, but it doesn't have that Old Testament or apostolic, for that matter, thus says the Lord. Then you have other people that say, it's actually not, none of that. It's just, it's just preaching. It's just preaching. So you, you start to see that, that, that there's, this, there's this entire tangled, um, uh, these in, intertwined tangled issues. If it's this, is it still continuing? If it's that, is it still continuing? If it's that, what's the purpose, right? And so 1 Corinthians 14 actually addresses these issues more than any other passage in the Bible. And here we are. And so what we're going to do, I said there was, I've figured out a way to skin the cat. Okay. What we're going to do is we're going to go through the whole chapter first. Not tonight. I mean, you would want to get home before midnight, but we're going to go through the whole chapter. And what I'm going to do as we go through the chapter is I'm going to avoid as many detours as possible. Just work through the chapter. The only thing that I'll do is I'll give the various perspectives on what the text is talking about. Okay? Once we wrap up the chapter, then we will talk about specifically the nature and purpose of tongues, whether they continue, the nature and purpose of prophecy, and whether it continues, and what are we to make of the implications of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, all right? So, basically, uh, as we go through and explain the text, we're not going to dig into these other issues at first. We're going to work through the passage. And th there's a reason why I think we should do it that way, because anybody remember when we were going through Hebrews? Okay, good. It was like 190 sermons, I hope you would remember, all right? Um, I said this about the warning passages over and over and over again. I said, our tendency is to see a warning passage and then to immediately jump to is this saying I can lose my salvation or is, it, is, is there eternal security, right? 
So in other words, you've got the warning passage, and then you jump to the theological implications of the warning passage. And my argument was repeatedly through those messages as we dealt with that, is that when we, when we jump to the theological implications and conclusions, we end up missing the text. So we have to take the text on its own merit, and in, in a real sense, we have to look at the text and see what's there first before we start to make all kinds of conclusions, all right? So I think that that actually is just a reflection of, of commitment to the Bible, because I certainly have my theological convictions about cessationism and continuationism and blah, blah, blah. Okay? But let's see what the text says first. Okay? So what that means is that you have uh, responsibility. Um, I would encourage you to uh, maybe once, twice a week, read 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 in one sitting. Okay? Just, that's a unit. Just read it. And what will happen is, as we go through the text, before we jump to our conclusions, is that as we dig into the text, the text is going to make more sense to you the more familiar familiar you are with it. You do understand that's how that works, right? How many of you have had the experience where um, on Saturday night you read the text carefully that we're going to be preaching from the next day, and because you read it the night before, you got more out of it than if you wouldn't have read it the night before. By the way, that's one of the ways to maximize the ministry of the Word in your life is to actually read the passage for yourself. You don't have to do Judges 19 and 20. Um, But... (laughs) But read the text. Get familiar with the text. Why? Because what happens is the more you deepen your understanding of the text, or at least, let's just say, your familiarity with it, your understanding deepens as it is taught. Okay? So that's, that's my encouragement to you. Now, that brings us to, um, to 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. We have to do just sort of a quick review because the three rules of Bible interpretation are first rule, the second rule, and then the third rule. Okay. Yeah, see, now, now you, you, you have better hermeneutics than John MacArthur. Okay, now. Um, that's an inside joke. 1 Corinthians 14 fits in a context. Shock. It follows chapter 13, which follows chapter 12. 12 to 14 are a, form a unit. Okay? But guess where 12 to 14 fits in? 1 Corinthians. You have concentric circles of context, all right? So, um, you have to have an understanding of the background so that when you get to chapter 14, things actually sort of make sense against the background. Because what happens is a lot of people jump into 14 and they go, huh, look at that. Paul says, I wish you all spoke in tongues. There's their proof text. A proof text? Without a context is a pretext for, huh? A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Okay. Okay. You get it? Okay. So, you can't just jump into 1 Corinthians 14 you have to remember where it is living. So, Paul's writing to the Corinthians. 
What is the Corinthians' major sin? I know it's been a while since we've been here, but what is their major sin? What? Yes. Pride. That's the major sin of the, of the Corinthians. And you see it from the very beginning. You see, you see pride driving the divisions. You see pride driving the, um, the false liberality or charity. Um, you see pride being manifest in the way that the Corinthians viewed spirituality. Okay? The Corinthians would have loved the word spirituality. Because the Corinthians were, were sold on a super spiritualized view of the Christian life. Okay? And it affected everything. We've seen this as we've gone through each chapter. They had a super spiritualized view of marriage so that, um, you know, you could have marriage or actually not even get married because you're like the angels, right? So you get this super spiritualized spirituality. And so they're not only fond of, of, um, of the gifts, they're fond of certain gifts. What might be some of the Corinthians' favorite gifts? Let's just say, what, was, what do you think their favorite gift was? Tongues. Tongues. Do you know why tongues ends up being the favorite gift of the Corinthians? Because it's showy. It's sensational. It is, by the way, if you've ever been in churches like this where where these things are done, there is, and having been in many, there is a look-at-me focus on the exercise of tongues. So if you have a church that is proud, and you have a church that is, that is filled with the haves and the have-nots, um, then uh, the haves are the ones that look good to everybody, that look like the super spiritualized, that look like they're living already in the age to come, even right now. And so, speaking in tongues, and by the way, there, there's a very good possibility that, um, that they had such a super spiritualized view of the Christian life that that they believed that they could live like angels, which may be some of the, the motivation of why Paul speaks about marriage in the way that he does. Um, and it's very possible that some of them thought, we've been given the, the language of angels. This is what they loved. They loved the gifts, but they loved the gifts that brought them attention. Nobody in Corinth was arguing over who had the best gifts of helps. Nobody was arguing over who was the best encourager. It was who has the biggest display. Who has the biggest manifestation, all right? So, Paul is dealing in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 with, literally, the things of the Spirit. If you look over at chapter 12, so you have your ESV with you, right? You didn't convert? You have your Greek text? Okay. Uh, Somebody does have an ESV, right? Okay. Okay. No condemnation. Somebody read verse 1. Okay. You have ESV? Okay. Notice that gifts is in italics. Do you see that? It's in italics in the ESV, right? 
Okay, well, that's too bad. What's that? Okay, so italicized means, <laughs> I really don't care. Um, <laughs> I'm teasing. So uh, what does italics mean? It's not there in the text. It's put there to smooth out the translation. Now, unfortunately, um, the minute that you put in gifts, you ruin the word spiritual. Because the text just says, and now concerning spirituals. That's what it says. So our translators put gifts in because that seems to be like one of the more obvious choices, but you have to understand you can't even tell the gender of the word in spirituals because it could be masculine or it could be neuter, which means spiritual people or spiritual things. And so I would actually translate 1 Corinthians 12, 1 as now concerning the things of the Spirit. Okay. I don't think Paul talked about spiritual and spirituality like we talk about it. For Paul, when you see spirit, I would say 19 times out of 20, it's capital S, Holy Spirit, all right? So spirituals are just the things of the spirit in Pauline terminology, all right? So we put gifts in to make it a little more uh, understandable because nobody says spirituals, all right? And now look over at uh, 1231. But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you still a more excellent way. All right? So spirituals, pneumaticon, this in 1231 is charismata. By the way, you hear you hear that charismata, charismatic. Okay. In the biblical sense, you should be charismatic because you believe in grace gifts given by the Holy Spirit. Okay. So, in order not to confuse anyone, we should just say pneumatic. You like pneumatic? You know that is the word for the Spirit, pneuma, pneumatic. So you're pneumatic Christians, all right? So you've got now concerning the things of the Spirit and then earnestly desire the greater charismata, the greater gifts, all right? Now, chapter 14, verse 1, pursue love, yet earnestly desire, what do you think that is? The things of the Spirit. So, by the way, it becomes sort of easy to see why our translators say gifts, because there seems to be sort of an overlap, all right? And then Paul says, but rather that you would prophesy. So, so what, what I would suggest is spirituals and gifts, or charismata, actually should be seen somewhat um, uh, sort of in an inclusive type way. So, the things of the Spirit is what the terminology that Paul uses when he's focusing on the role of the Spirit, charismata, gifts, is what he uses when he's talking about the manifestations or the, uh, the, the, the outworking of those gifts, all right? And so you have, in a sense, people, gifts, and manifestations, all right? So Paul then, then begins chapter 12 when he says, now concerning, so start a new section, now concerning things of the Spirit, he then goes and gives uh, what we could call uh, the diversity of gifts, but the same Spirit. So in 12, 4 through 11, this is going to be his emphasis. He's going to say this actually. So uh, diversity of gifts, but the same Spirit. Diversity of of manifestations or or the, however they translate energo, that is manifestations of the gifts, but the same spirit, um, same ministries or different ministries, but the same Lord, right? Now, his purpose in 12, 
4 through 11 is not to give you a list of spiritual gifts so that you can take a spiritual gift inventory test in order to see what gift you have. His point is actually far simpler than that, and that is to say, listen, in the body of Christ, you have one body, but you have the Spirit, the one same Spirit, working in all of the members of the body in diverse ways. There's a variety of gifts. There's a variety of, of, of energies or, or manifestations. There's a variety of ministries. And it is that variety that comes to us from the same Lord and the same Spirit. And so you may have a di- gift that's different than mine. In fact, you probably do. And the same Spirit that gifted you gifted me. And therefore, because we're gifted by the same Lord and the same Spirit... That means that we actually aren't at odds with each other or competing with each other. We are one with each other, and I need you just like you need me. That's the point. You actually can't miss it if you read the text slowly enough. We want to jump and make some spiritual list inventory and then say, you know, so I did, I did one of those. Some guy was doing a, a, a DMIN project and asked me if I'd fill out a bunch of stuff for him. And one of those things was a spiritual gift test. And so guess what? I'm a prophet. I actually scored the highest on, on that. Um, wisdom. So listen to your daddy. Okay. Uh, verified gift of wisdom, <laughs> right? So, so, you, but but you do understand that once you start to go down that track with this text, what you end up doing is you end up furthering the Corinthian error instead of seeing what Paul was talking about. Because you know how we do these things, and we need help putting the tables up. I got the gift of prophecy. I don't have to touch a table. Right? So, you have the source, the unity, diversity of gifts, which is, by the way, the Holy Trinity. You have the purpose of the gifts. Look look at 12.7. This is so important. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? For the common good. For the common good. So, so I don't know how many people we have in the room. So you are, you are gifted by the Holy Spirit, and your gift is for the common good. It's not for you to be able to say, look what I can do. Look what I got. It's to put you into service for the good of the body. Now, Paul gives a partial list of gifts in 8 through 10. How do we know it's a partial list? What's that? Well, we have other lists, and other lists have things that aren't in this list. All right? So it's a partial list, but then look at verse 11. One and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, what's the key phrase? Just as he wills. Oh. So you don't get to pick your gift. It's already been picked for you. The sovereign spirit actually distributes the gifts as he wills. You don't, you don't, (laughs) let's just put it this way, you don't have a say in the matter. Now, it could be, it could very well be that the Holy Spirit gives a a spiritual gift or ability that is uh, compatible with a natural strength. 
but you still don't get to pick it. In fact, sometimes the Spirit sovereignly distributes gifts in such a way that it makes the recipients incredibly uncomfortable with the gift that they've been given. When, when I was 14 years old, 14, Steve Nugent can actually testify to this, not because he was there, but because he has empirical evidence. When I was 14 years old, I knew, I couldn't tell you why I knew, but I knew in, the, in, in my heart of hearts that God had called me to preach. made no sense to me, especially since I was absolutely, utterly petrified to talk in front of people. So you start thinking to yourself, I have to, there's, got to be, there's got to be some mistake. The Spirit sovereignly distributes gifts as He wills. Which, by the way, also means that any kind of theology that says you need to manifest this gift in order to demonstrate that you have the Spirit is fundamentally flawed and contrary to the idea of the sovereign distribution of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, first sermon I ever preached, I was 15 years old. Is that right, Steve? And Steve Nugent is the only person in this room who's ever heard that sermon, thanks to my mother. I can't be bitter with her because she's in heaven, but I was a little upset for a while. (laughs) No, it wasn't. (laughs) Yeah. Who in their right mind would let a 15-year-old preach? So Paul goes through, and you've got the diversity of gifts, same spirit. And then Paul goes from from that discussion to this idea that you have one body. So you have to understand, when there's division, when there's competition, when there's rivalry, when there's jealousy, when there's envy, there is something that is being fundamentally forgotten, and that is, listen, there may be a diversity of gifts among the variety of members, but listen, it's one body. It is actually just simply one body. And so Paul will talk about the unity and diversity in the body. It is actually the baptism of the Spirit that unifies the body. That's the whole point of chapter 12 and verse 13. It is the fact that you and I, we've been made to drink of the same Spirit. We've been drenched by the same Spirit, baptized into the same body. And and, and this is the common experience. This is not, by the way, a post-conversion experience that's marked by speaking in tongues. It happens when you believe. And when you believe, and when I believe, and when whoever believes, we all have the same foundational common experience of partaking of the same spirit together. And nobody gets two or three times more than anybody else. You drink of the same spirit. That's the unity of the body. So you start to see how messed up the Corinthians were, right? Look at me. Look at this gift. I'm so awesome. I'm, I'm, God's, I'm God's gift to the church. And Paul's like, listen, You're all God's gift to the church because you've all partaken of the Spirit. And there's not anybody that's actually somehow some sort of lesser member. In fact, what Paul does is he develops in this very argument, in this one body, many members, is this fact that God has placed us all in the body as he willed. So so notice the parallel. The Spirit sovereignly distributes the gifts as he wills, and God sovereignly places you in the body as he wills. So your function in the body is divine appointment by God. And so there are are toes and there are eyes. 
There are hands and there are feet. There are ears and there are noses. And then Paul says, and there's unseemly parts too. And it's the weaker members and the unseemly members that actually are worthy of more honor. Think about that. That's, well, you talk about revolutionary. That obliterates all typical social stratas. That obliterates any kind of hierarchy based on gift or manifestation. And so there's a one another care in the body. You take care of the weaker members. Why? They're a part of the same body. They've partaken of the same spirit. They've been appointed by the same Lord. This is, is this practical? Is there anything that's relevant about this? Yeah, we can't all be the same, that's for sure. I, I, would, I, would, I would push it a little farther and, and I would say, Paul's vision of the body of Christ means that the ones that are weak, the ones that are harder to love, the ones that don't seem to be as productive, the ones that are, we would say, high maintenance. Paul says, they're the important ones. They're the important ones. When when was the last time you actually reached out, served somebody, and loved somebody that wasn't all that lovely. That is what Paul is talking about. Why? Because in God's economy, he doesn't operate on the same principles that we do. The things that impress us don't impress God. So then there's a transition, 28 to 31. And um, that transition is, let me just go ahead and read it to you, Verse um, starting in verse, um, let's start in verse 27. Now, you are Christ's body and individually members of it, and God is appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. Okay. So, so by the way, what, what's, what's interesting about Paul's little list here? Tongues are last. Tongues are last. Yeah. All are not apostles, are they? You know enough Greek to know the answer, right? The answer is no. Not all of them are apostles. All are not prophets, are they? No. All are not teachers, are they? By the way, apostles, prophets, teachers, these are the, the, the more visible members of the body, but again, it doesn't make them more valuable or important you could make an argument for the apostles having a significance that, we, that, that none of us have, right? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? Oh boy, right there. Guess what that tells me?
All do not interpret, do they? Earnestly desire the greater gifts, I still show you a more excellent way. And so Paul says that there's, a, there's, in, there's this divine arrangement, and God himself has done it, and, and, and not everybody has the same gifts. And then that brings him to chapter 13. Desire the greater gifts. By the way, has he, he's only intimated what the greater gifts are. Okay? He's not explicitly said it yet. But what he does say here, notice that last line. I will show you a more excellent way. Well, what is that more excellent way? Love. Now, you have to understand, there's something that the Corinthians are not going to fundamentally like about this. Because because if you have a a view of the church of haves and have-nots, and super-spiritualized, and then then the slugs, okay? If you've got got a two-tier view or a three-tier view, and you've got people down here, people up here, then, then love actually is not the most important thing. The most important thing is being up here in this tier. Paul says, listen, I want you to desire the greater gifts. But before I talk about that, I'm going to show you the more excellent way. And then what Paul does is he actually turns around and and what he's going to do is he's going to demonstrate that the greater gifts are the gifts that do what? Edify the body. That's what's going to make a gift a greater gift is its ability to edify. Now, as he goes into chapter 13, um, the idea is, is that love should motivate us in all of our use of the gifts. So how much love is there in, look at me, look at me, look at me? None. Love is the context and the motivation for the exercise of the spiritual gifts. And so love does not compel me to put my gifts on display to exalt myself, but love compels me to do what? To do good to my brothers and sisters through the employment of whatever gift I have. Why? Because the Spirit gave me that gift for the common good. And so Paul, in this, in this famous chapter that we spend a lot of time in, 13, 1 to 3, the necessity of love, right? You know all mysteries, all knowledge, you prophesy, blah, 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 and you don't have love, guess what? You're a big, fat zero. You can have faith so as to move mountains. You can give your body to be burned. You can speak with the tongues of men and of angels. But if you don't have love, you are nothing. Zero. By the way, there's this cool little escalation thing that happens in in one through three in terms of experience and gifts. And then what Paul does is then he gives the description or the characteristics of love in four through seven. And then he wraps up eight to 13 with the permanence of Christian love. Now, here's the important part. Gifts are temporary and gifts are imperfect. Love lasts forever. So what's more important? Being able to speak in tongues or love? Now, by the way, you, have, you, you understand Paul's not pitting love versus gifts. It's not what he's doing. What he's saying is gifts need to function within the context of love. And if they don't, they don't profit anything either for the one who has the gift or the one that receives. So, gifts are temporary and imperfect, and then 
we get to chapter 14. Okay. Now, let me just say one thing about chapter 14, and then we'll, we'll close, instead of me trying to do five verses in five minutes. Paul is going to correct the Corinthians with Gordon Fee, classic Pentecostal, by the way. Correcting the Corinthians is what he calls it, unbridled expression of tongues. 1 Corinthians 14 is corrective of the Corinthian practice of tongues. 1 Corinthians 14 is going to establish principles which demonstrate the superiority of prophecy over tongues for one simple reason. Prophecy edifies the body. Tongues do not. That's that's going to be his whole point. The very simple reason why prophecy edifies the body and tongues do not is because prophecy is intelligible and tongues are unintelligible. It's that simple. That is Paul's argument of 1 Corinthians 14. You should actually want greater gifts that edify and edification depends on intelligibility. And that which is unintelligible doesn't edify. In fact, not only does it not edify, it actually is counterproductive to the gospel. That will be part of his argument in 20 to 25. So, that's the background for... 1 Corinthians 14. And so next week, we'll do 1 through 5 or maybe more. I don't know. Um, But read it. Read 12 to 14. But here's here's the point of application that that you have to take away. Your place in the body and whatever gifts God has given you are for the common good of the body and the edification of the body. Regardless of what you might think about the details of of this text, understand this, God actually puts you in with these people to edify, to build up, to help people grow. And you think to yourself, well, what can I do? I don't, even know, I don't even know what my gifts are. Well, you know what? If you just actually have a heart of love towards people and just look for opportunity to serve them and to love them, guess what you'll start doing? You'll actually start being used by God's Spirit to do good to brothers and sisters in a way that, that gets outside of yourself and starts to focus on others. That's what edification is all about. You know, we, we, we live in such, a, in such an incredibly self-absorbed, self-centered uh, uh, society so that everything has to be about me. And Paul says, it's not about you, it's about the body. Serve the body, edify the body, build up the body, encourage the body, console the body, help the body. That's why God saved you. So, you know, if, if you're like all, like a hermit... You're violating the very principles of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. If you're a lone ranger, if you're that rock, I'm an island, blah, blah, blah. I'm, I can do it all by myself. Guess what? You are actually in defiance of the, of the design of God for his church. We're supposed to be connected, building each other up. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Just maybe. We wouldn't have so many problems if we focused on others and how to serve them and build them up. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for...
this wonderful book, and we thank you that we're finally back to it, and we pray that you'd help us. Pray that you'd challenge us. Father, we pray that you would get us outside of ourselves and, and get us serving and edifying and building up your people. And uh, Lord, remind us tonight that, that even just what we might consider just little things may end up being really big in somebody's life. And so, Father, we pray that you give us that heart of love, love to Christ, love to one another. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.